in Amos chapter number three, we're beginning in verse number one. Amos is a, an awesome prophet of God. He has a prophecy against Israel, and here he's kind of summing up and kind of getting to the direct point of it. In verse number one, he said, Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you. Now, most of you would stop right there and you would say, Whoa, hold on. Everything I've ever heard, especially in contemporary Christianity, is that God is for me. But there are times when God may be against you. And that was a, a, a wake-up moment, or it should have been a wake-up moment, for the nation of Israel. God ended up casting them away and, 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 and scattering them across the sun. And, and he said, hear the word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, you only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. Can two walk together except they be agreed? Now, a couple of things that we're going to get into as, as, as we open up this message, but first off, this this verse is often used in marriage counseling or in parenting or in maybe building teamwork in a church. Can, can two walk together unless they be agreed? And it is good marriage counseling because you got to have agreement. You got to have a foundation. You got to be going the same way. But this verse is not speaking of interpersonal relationship building. This verse is speaking of a people who turned away from God and started going the complete opposite direction. And God's saying, look, we can't walk together unless you're walking in agreement with me. God is telling the nation of Israel that they must come into agreement with him if they're going to continue walking with him. Now, walking with God is an important concept that goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. It says in the book of Genesis in chapter 3, you probably remember that whenever Adam and Eve sinned and they started to hide themselves, it said God came down in the cool of the evening, right? But you know what it says? It says the voice of the Lord came down and walked in the cool of the evening and Adam began to hide himself. That's Genesis 3, verse 8. The voice of the Lord, that's Jesus. He came down and he walked in the cool of the evening and Adam and Eve began to hide. And all throughout the Bible, you'll see different texts, different verses where men are characterized in the Old Testament. When you knew that they were godly folks, it say that they walked with God. It says that Enoch walked with God and then was not. He got raptured. Amen? He got the first rapture ticket. Enoch walked with God and then he was not. He was gone. But it says even that of Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, these are the men of God. They walked with God. What does it mean to walk with God? It means to walk in agreement with God, to go the way that he goes, to love what he loves, to do what he does, and, and to allow him to direct our paths. One of the most common misconceptions that we have in the church is that whatever we do, God's going to do. I heard people say that before. Well, God's going to bless whatever I do. God's going to do whatever I put my hand to, God's going to do. The nation of Israel here found out just a little bit differently. 
God said that we got to walk in agreement. God is for the church. God is for his people. God will sustain you, and he will carry you through all that you go through so long as you walk in agreement with him. But we cannot suppose, as the nation of Israel did, that affliction would never come and God's blessing would remain upon us no matter what, no matter how we live or operate our lives. And now, we're talking nationally. We're talking about a nation that had turned away from the God that loved them. I want to point out two things before we kind of get into this, because it gets kind of nitty-gritty. I want to point out two things. There's two passages right here in this same place that God reminds the nation of Israel before he brings this rebuke that he loved them. He said, I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you out of Egypt. You were stuck in, in, for us as Christians today, we were in Egypt in sin. We were lost in darkness. Pharaoh had control of my life and of your life. We were stuck in Egypt. We were slaves to sin, it says in the book of Romans. We were a slave to unrighteousness. We were a slave to our carnal desires. And when we heard the gospel, the shackles broke. And when we received Christ, the Spirit of God revived us and we walked out of Egypt and we walked across the dry ocean. That's something that nobody had ever seen done before. And, and we see here that he's reminding them, I did that for you. You didn't get yourself out of Egypt. You didn't break the chains. You didn't change Pharaoh's heart. You couldn't get yourself out of sin. You couldn't stop doing what you used to do. Only the power of God did this. Only God could have gotten his people out of Egypt. And he did. And he reminded them of this. So before he brings this judgment, he reminds them, I loved you. I loved you. This kind of reminds you of a parent that tells their kid, I love you, right before they spank them. He's, but he's reminding them that, you know what, he did not have to redeem them, but he chose to. And he didn't have to save you, but he chose to. He's not willing that any perish. He li he, Jesus was lifted high on that cross, and grace is made available for each and every soul that will look and believe on him. He's made it available for all, according to Titus 2, verse 11. His grace has appeared to all. Now, it says that, that he, he brought them up out of the land of Egypt. Now, look in verse 2. It says, you only have unknown of all the families of the earth. In other words, we have a special relationship. It, it was actually a blood covenant. It was actually, they were redeemed by the blood of a lamb. They put the blood of a lamb over the doorposts of their homes. They celebrated Passover every uh, 14th day of the first month of the year on their Jewish calendar. They, they celebrated that, and, and that, that blood covenant is what held them in communion with their God. But even in the very first moment that they got the first tablet of the Ten Commandments, they were at the same time. They were worshiping a golden calf. And many of them died on that same day. 
Even from the very beginning, when God's finger was etching in stone the Ten Commandments, there was part of the nation gone astray from the God that just brought them out of Egypt. So he's, he's telling them that he loved them, telling them that he redeemed them, that they were special to him. Therefore will I punish you for all your iniquities, it says in verse 2, because I loved you. See, what we do as Christians matters. If you name the name of God and you say that you belong to him and you're set apart from everybody else, you know, he said, I love you. And, and, and I've, I've, we've got this special connection. Then how you live your life and how the world sees you matters. So he's telling the nation of Israel, I can't let you continue to go the way that you're going. I can't allow you to continue to go the way that you're going. And name my name. You're going one way, but that's not my way. And what they were beginning to do, as you'll see in a little bit, they were beginning to profane the name of God. Israel means they were God's people. That's what the name means, the people of God. And so all these nations that surrounded Israel, they knew that that was the nation that worshipped the one true God, the God that made heaven and earth. See, everybody else worshipped the sun God, the moon God, the rain God, the fertility God, the, you know, the Asherah pole, the Easter egg bunny. They worshipped everything under the sun. If it walked and talked, they worshipped it. But for the, for the nation of Israel was different. They worshipped the one true God who is eternal, no, had no beginning, has no end, is unknowable, unspeakable, unapproachable, is holy, holy, holy. The one true God. And, 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 and so as the nation of Israel began to digress into, listen, society's transgressions. As the nation of Israel began to reflect the same sin of the society around it, God began to bring judgment on it. See, as a church, as the church, we're supposed to be a light to a dark world. It, it's, it's not the perfect environment. That's great. That's what we're supposed to be in. We're supposed to be in a dark world. We weren't saved to live in utopia. We were saved to burn bright in a dark world and to burn long until the Lord comes to get us or calls us home. And that was the, the, the mark, the calling of the nation of Israel is to be a witness, to be a testimony to the world about who God is, that God is set apart, that God is holy. What the, the reason that they worshiped on the Sabbath, the reason that they abstained from pork, the reason that they didn't do this or they didn't do that was to set themselves apart from everyone else. It, it, it stuck out. There was something about them that stuck out to the society around them. But when they lost that saltiness, when they lost that savor of salt about their lives, when they lost what made them different, they became complacent and they began to reflect the same transgression of the society around them. One of the things that we must do as a church 
is to make sure that we never reflect the transgression of the society around us. We must make sure as the church of the living God that we never begin to lower the standard of God for the church, that we never begin to think like the world thinks, that we never begin to talk like the world talks, that we never begin to, to look and dress and speak and do the things that the world does. We are called to be a set-apart people for His glory that He would have a holy witness left in an unholy world. We are called to be a bold witness to a lost and dying world. Do you know that God wants to, be, God wants to use you to witness to this world? Your job as a Christian is not to have a better life. Sorry. He's our life. Your job as a Christian is that he would be able to use you, that he, would be able to, that he would be able to operate through you into other people's lives. There's other people that need to be saved. There's other people that need to be ministered to. Jesus said he didn't come for the righteous. That would destroy 90% of the church's teachings today. He said, I did not come for the righteous. I came for the sinner. He came for the lost, for the broken, for the downtrodden, for the hurting, for the lonely. He came for those that were neglected and forgotten, for those that were enslaved and enchained and in bondage. He came for the broke. And we as the church have built a, a, a foundation that is faulty whenever we begin to teach people that, that, that gain is godliness, that, that, that more God means more blessing. That God is out to bless us. One of the things that we see in this verse, it says in verse number three, it says, can two walk together except they be agreed? God here is asking a rhetorical question, obviously. And obviously, if you're going to walk together with somebody, you're going to be in agreement with them. So he's telling Israel they are no longer in agreement with him. You're no longer in agreement with me. What is it specifically that they did? I would encourage you. You may not have ever done it. Maybe you did it in a, a year-long Bible study or something, but, or, or reading. But in, in the book of Amos, he actually goes through and he lists the transgressions that Israel committed. As I read them off to you, think about if these could be applicable to the church world today. Now, I'm, I'm speaking to the church world because when God brings judgment to the house of Israel, it's the same as God bringing judgment to the church. Well, how is God going to bring judgment to the church, Pastor? Peter teaches us that judgment starts with the house of God. When God comes back, he's not rapturing a dirty bride. He's going to rapture a pure bride. You can go back and you can look at the, the foolish virgins and the wise virgins. Some of them had oil in their lamps. They were ready. They were waiting on the bridegroom to come. They were anticipating his very soon coming. And there were others that 
They were just, you know, they had the cares of the world. They were too busy watching American Idol on TV. They were taking their kids to the ball game and they were doing this and they were doing that and they didn't have time to get ready. Are you telling me I can't take my kid to ball practice? Not if it coincides and, and keeps them away from church. So what are the specific things? Now, and what I was saying is as I list these off, as, as I'm, I'm just going to just kind of highlight what he said. Think about if these are applicable to the church world today. The very first one that, that he, he goes through is that they had sexual transgressions. In other words, they were looking the other way whenever maybe a minister um, has a, a, an adulterous relationship with the secretary or the, you know, the, the organist or whatever, and then they go start another church on the other side of town, build up another church. Instead of dealing with the sin, it's covered. The sexual transgressions that the nation of Israel committed were the same kind of sexual transgressions that the church committed. In the book of Corinthians, when you have one son having his father's wife, and then here you have a, a, a father and son having the same maid. These sexual sins are, are, you can't say, well, that's not the way it is today. All you got to do is read the news about the church. It goes on in the church. We must make sure that it doesn't go on in our own personal lives. If, if we have issues in, in this context, in, in sexual sins, know, know this. That there is no absolutely zero uh, place that this is supposed to happen except for, Bible says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, that we keep the marriage bed undefiled between one woman and one man that are married together in holy matrimony. That's the only place any kind of sexual activity is supposed to take place. This sin is one of the, one of the ways that they begin to profane the name of God because they allow themselves to take on and begin to look like the world. They began to, to be complacent in these things. And when in the church we see, I never knew that this was like this until I started ministering the gospel. And people will tell you, you pray for my wife, pray for my wife. And then you find out two years later they were never married. They're just shacked up because she don't want to get a divorce because she still gets some money from her past husband. These things happen. Our, our nation gives money to keep people in sin. Our nation pays single moms more money to stay single and to keep having babies than to get married. Our nation pays these people to do this. And it flies in opposition to God. But God forbid we do the same thing in the church. But we should be teaching, we should be teaching people to honor marriage. That the marriage bed be undefiled. We should honor those that get married. We should bless them and we should help them and we should encourage them. But we should instruct our children in the way in which they should go. And marriage is one of those ways. And 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 no, marriage is not between two men and two women. This also is an abomination to God. This is one of those things that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet you see 
literally almost half the church world embracing this. I saw a recent study that there was, I think, 97% of Pentecostal preachers do not accept it. That's good. It's not good enough, but that's good. But when you get into the Baptist circle, it's 50-50. When you get into the Methodist circle, it's even worse. It's like 70-30 of embracing two men or two women being married. But marriage is and always has been one woman, one man under God, united in a covenant of marriage. And so anything, any sexual activity outside of that, it doesn't matter what it is, anything outside of that is not acceptable to God and it will profane his name and it will cause me, you, or anyone else to no longer walk in agreement with God. It will cause us to no longer walk in agreement with God. The second one is drunkenness. These are all, most of these sins you'll see in the previous chapter in chapter 2. The first one is sexual. The second one is drunkenness. He says that, that in, in verse 2 that, that they gave wine to the Nazarites. These, these were men that were set apart. These were men that were, that were supposed to be undefiled and holy unto God. And they gave them wine to get them drunk. And they began to take on the same as the world. This is the same thing we see going on in the church. It's, it's sad. Even in ministerial circles, I've seen people even begin to, to get drunk. I've seen so many ungodly things, and it's, it all comes from a place of lowering our standards so that we are now acceptable with the world. You see, God calls us to be holy, and, and we stand out like a sore thumb in an ungodly world, but it causes friction, and the world's getting more ungodly, and the more ungodly it gets, the more salty you're supposed to be, but because there's so much pressure, we lower the standard and lower the standard and lower the standard until we get to the point where there's no longer any separation between the church and the world, God forbid. God's not walking hand in hand with the world. And if we lower our standards to look like and talk like and live like the world, we are no longer going to be walking with God. God walks one way, the world walks another. I'll show you that in just a few minutes. There's just a couple more I've got to go through. Number one was sexual activity. Number two is drunkenness. Number three, now let me, let me get on drunkenness just a little bit longer. The other part of drunkenness is, is, is that they were defiling themselves. They were intoxicating themselves. But it, you can also use drugs. You could apply this into the, to, to drugs, whether it be marijuana or any other kind of harder drug. These are all uh, areas that God has forbidden us to do. Anything that causes you to become intoxicated to where you're no longer in control, if you do that on purpose to escape reality, that's a problem because God is our refuge, not a drug, not a pill, not anything we can shoot or ingest or sniff or snort or powder or any other thing. If we're looking to a substance to take us away, we're looking to the wrong thing. Okay, and I'm not saying if you need a Tylenol for a headache, I'm not saying don't do I'm I'm talking about when 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 you are when you have too much pressure and you just need something to let loose. 
You need prayer. That's what you need. You need the Spirit of God. That's what you need. You need to get alone with God in the prayer closet and let the Spirit of God lift that anxiety off of you. You need to let the Spirit of God remove the fear and remove the doubt. You need to let the Spirit of God fill in the voids and fill in those deep places in our souls. Deep cries out to deep. Begin to pray in the Spirit. Let the Spirit of God move upon your soul. And you'll find there's nothing in this world that you need except for God. As the Spirit of God moves, you'll be lifted out of those valleys. So there was sexual perversion, there was drunkenness going on. These are things that they begin to act like, look like, and talk like the world. Number three, uh, it says that they commanded the prophets saying, prophesy not. They commanded the prophets saying, prophesy not. What is, what, how would that apply to us? Well, there was just some things that they did not allow their preachers to preach about. Well, we just talked about a few of them. We just talked about homosexuality. And, and, but to, in today's culture, in today's society, you might get canceled for that. Oh, well. You might get canceled for speaking about abortion. You might get canceled for, for saying that evolution's crazy, that God's the creator. You might get canceled for saying these things, that, that God, to God it's an abomination for, 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 some, for a three-year-old to take pills, to change them from a boy to a girl. They're not changed. You've just messed them up physically and, and psychologically. Transgenderism is, is one of those those things that, that the church is wrestling with right now. And far too many people have a weak stomach and they, they won't speak out against it. The world don't want to hear it. But if God tells us to preach about it, we got to preach about it. But what they were doing is they were commanding the prophets to prophesy not. In other words, don't tell me what the word of God says. Don't tell me that this is an abomination to God. Tell me what I want to hear. Tell me, tell me the numbers to put on the lottery. Tell me what horse is going to win the race today. Tell, tell me that I'm going to have a blessed life. Tell me how to get rich quick. Tell me who I'm going to marry. Tell me where my purpose is in life. Tell me the good things and, and, and give me a pillow while you do it. They commanded the prophets to prophesy not, and the prophets shut up. This got under God's nerves. This got under God. So when you have ministers, prophets, evangelists, or pastors that will skip over certain subjects, it rubs God the wrong way. And it should rub you the wrong way. This is the beginning of a time period where God's saying, you know what, you, you can keep going that way, but this is my way. And the nation of Israel who was redeemed, who was brought up supernaturally by the angel of the Lord, inspiring Moses and bringing them through this great deliverance, that nation of Israel, God scattered like sand in the sea. They're lost tribes. They're lost tribes because God lost them. He scattered them because of this. 
And see, we as the church, we need to come to grips. This is reality that God requires us to walk with him and not take on and reflect the culture of our society. We're called to stand out. We're called to stand out. We need to take some brave pills. Courage needs to rise up. We need to look to our God and not look to the mirror of society. They'll come against us, but if God be for us, who can be against us? I would rather be for God than against God. So, number one was sexual perversion. Number two was drunkenness in the society. Number three is what I, I called it. This is weak prophets speaking only what is acceptable. Weak prophets speak only what is acceptable. You know that you can go into, uh, you, you, you can get into self-help. You can get into these kinds of things and, and become popular and people will clap and, 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 and like it. You can preach only what is acceptable. A true man or woman of God will preach what God says. Taking the whole book, amen, and not cutting anything out. I remember speaking to, 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 to a guy one time about the Thomas Jefferson Bible. I said, you, you got a Bible like Thomas Jefferson because, you know, Thomas Jefferson, he's one of the founding fathers of our nation. Hoorah. What, but this is what he did. He was a deist. He didn't believe in the whole Bible. You know what he did? He took a, a scalpel and he literally cut out pieces of the Bible that he did not agree with. He had holes all throughout his Bible. This is how you could own slaves and, and continue in going. You, had to, you have to cut out the whole book of, of, you know, lots of things. It's ungodly. But yet on the whole deal, he said, oh, yeah, I've got a Bible. Well, no, you've, you've portioned it. You've only preached what's acceptable to you. You've not brought the whole counsel of God to the table. And we as the men and women of God must receive the whole counsel of who God is. If we're going to say we are God's people, we must be living the whole counsel of God and not the portion that we accept, not the portion that we like, not the portion that is easy to follow, but the whole thing. Amen? So these weak prophets, when, when the people didn't like the people didn't like them to preach against sexual perversion, didn't like them to preach about drunkenness, didn't like them to preach against worshiping other gods and all these things, and they said, don't preach on that verse or that verse or that verse or that verse. Oh, yeah, you know that verse that says, if God be for us, who can be against us? You can preach that one, though. Now you know what happens in our churches today. We won't preach against homosexuality, but we will preach if God be for us, who can be against us? But what I'm telling you is if we don't preach the whole counsel of God, God's not for us. How can we say that we walk in agreement with God, but we don't walk with God? We must be in agreement with the whole counsel of God. The number of Number four, it says that they turned away from caring for the afflicted and the poor. This was another sin that the nation of Israel committed. In other words, what they did is they turned a blind eye when they saw somebody hurting. Jesus highlighted this in the, in the story of the Good Samaritan. 
It might have passed over you. It might have slipped through your, your, your ears. It slipped through mine a few times. But it was the religious folks that walked past the guy. The religious folks were going to church. They were too busy going to church then to stop and help somebody that was hurting. Jesus highlighted that, and he basically stuck a, a figurative thumb in their eye. You're going to church, there's somebody hurting, but you're so busy because you gotta, you know, you gotta get there, you gotta do this, you gotta, you can't stop, can't help anybody, and boom, it's you. You're the one that he was actually preaching against. And it was the lowly Samaritan that stopped and helped this person that actually did the will of the Father. This lowly Samaritan is someone that the, the Jewish nation looked down upon. And that person was the very one that did the will of God. And then the, the last one is that they turned righteousness into business. Now, we really don't have, you, I don't have to really get loud on that one. You know the church does this one today because for $29.99 you can get a prayer cloth and a book and a DVD and for $99.95 you can attend a conference to learn how you can do the same thing. For $99.95 you can get an increased anointing and for $129.95 you can get my autograph on it too. The, the, the church specializes in this area today, but they were, they were making merchandise of religion. Peter specifically targets this very thing when he says that these false prophets will make merchandise of you, and yet the church is still being made merchandise of. I think... Peter would probably fall out if he saw what was going on today. I've literally been in a church where they had two different prayer lines. Depending on the amount of money you brought de determined who prayed for you. And if you wanted the person with the most anointing, you had to pay the most money. Well, I didn't stay, I'll tell you that. But this stuff goes on in churches and the devil plays upon it. The devil makes you think that if you'll pay that money, you'll get that increase in anointing, but God can't be bought. He must be sought. You cannot buy God. It doesn't matter how much money you put on it. Nothing's going to change until you turn to God. But what they were doing is they were causing people to pay money for their religion. They were causing people to give money and, and, and they were selling righteousness. They were selling righteousness. Well, you know what, brother, uh, sis, sister so-and-so and brother so-and-so, they give a lot of money to the church and, you know, they, they have that... That, that thing, and you really can't be preaching about that thing, you know. This happens all the time. This happens all the time. Well, you're not going to build a church if you continue to preach against those things because you know the people that, that, that give the most money, they, you know. This happens all the time. Righteousness can't be bought. Our righteousness is gained through faith in Christ alone. 
Our righteousness is gained through faith in Christ alone. You're no more righteous or no less righteous than anyone else if your faith is in Jesus Christ. You don't need to go to a conference or buy a DVD or a t-shirt to declare your righteousness. Your righteousness is Christ in Christ alone. He, listen, he's sufficient. He's sufficient. He's God. He's God manifest in flesh, and he bore on himself our sins, our transgressions. He exchanged. There was an exchange that took place. My sin, your sin, the sin of the world was imputed to him. And if you'll believe that, the Bible says he will impute back to you the righteousness of Christ. You will be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You see, when we die and we go to heaven, we are clothed with white robes. It's not our own because I promise you my robe was stained a long time ago. But praise be to God that today is a different story, that today I'm no longer clothed with my own filthy garments, but those were rendered off. They were placed upon him at Calvary, and today I'm clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Jesus Christ, hallelujah. So when people try to sell righteousness, they are playing on the naivety, the, 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 the unbelief. They're playing on a, a people who don't know the reality of the righteousness of Christ. So we have sexual perversion, drunkenness, weak prophets speaking only what's acceptable, turning away from the afflicted and the poor, and then we have righteousness turned into business. Now, as I said, do you, do you see any similarities between these things and the church world today? And how can, we, how can we suppose, how can we suppose, right, that God would judge the nation of Israel? How will God not so judge us? When Peter expressly tells us that judgment starts with the house of God. Any nation given over to these things, these same characteristics, any nation given over to these same characteristics is not walking with God. See, what, what God was pointing out to them is that they were beginning to reflect the society around them. Our nation reflects these same characteristics. And if we're not careful, the church world will too. If we're not careful, the church world will begin to reflect the sin of the world. The society in every nation under the sun today is going down. Every single society from Europe to Africa to China, all of every society, society itself is crumbling. It's crumbling. Sin is infecting it from sea to shining sea. And America is leading the way. And if we're not careful as the church of the living God, we'll begin to lower our standards so much to the point where there's no difference between the world and us. What's acceptable to the world will be acceptable to us, and what's not acceptable to the world, not acceptable to us. Instead of being salt, we're going to be just a mirror of the world. Instead of salt to the world. Instead of standing out, instead of being a light to their darkness, we're going to be dark with them. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. 
It says here in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, speaking of darkness, speaking of darkness. Now, I, I was talking about the nation because our nation is in, in, in a, a time right now where there really and truly is no governing, guiding influence. What's happening today is there's a spirit that is in control. That's why it, things look so erratic. So I said earlier, you probably turn on the news and you're like, okay, what now? It's erratic because there's no guiding principle. There's no foundation any longer. Today, we are influenced by the spirit of the world. It's an erratic spirit that is controlling society. But God's not erratic. The church shouldn't be erratic. We should be preaching the same thing that the prophets of God preached. There's nothing new under the sun. God makes all things new, but he does it through the old gospel, the old story, the old rugged cross. Look what he says in verse 5. He said, this then is the message which we have heard of him. Now, now John's telling you what he saw. You don't get much more firsthand than this account. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. You don't get much more firsthand than this. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. It really settles a lot right there, but it, it, it does away with the sexual perversion, the drunkenness, the drug use, the prophets that don't preach what they're supposed to preach, turning away from the poor and selling righteousness. It, it does away with all that. God's light. In him's no darkness. There's none. Not at all. There is no darkness. If we say then, verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him, do you say you have fellowship with God? Do you say that you have fellowship with Do you know people that say they have fellowship with God? Do you know people that say they have, if we say that we have fellowship with them and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. This is what Israel was doing. The exact verse we left off at in Amos chapter 3, verse 3. That exact verse, this is exactly what they were going through. How can you say that you have fellowship with God? How can you say that you're his special people? How can you say that you are the called out, you are the one that's supposed to be the light to the world? How can you say that and walk and live in darkness? And if we're not careful as the church, we'll begin to take on these same characteristics that they did. If we, if we say that... We have fellowship with him. Walk in darkness. We lie and do not the truth. Verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. It is, it, it is when you begin to turn to God that everything changes. But you can't say that you're walking with God and staying in the darkness. 
Repentance is about a change. Repentance is about no longer going your way. Repentance is about choosing to today and forevermore go God's way and to take to take your way and, and to you know flush it down the toilet. Say, I'm not going that way anymore. It's no longer about my agenda, my plans, my dreams, what I'm offended by, what I care about. It's no longer about me. It's today and forevermore about God. This is true repentance. Biblical repentance, the picture is just turning. It's, it's you're walking this way, you're going along your way, and then you see the sign that says God's going the opposite way, and you turn and go the opposite way. And you, you now love what God loves and hate what God hates. Part of it is loving what God loves. And part of it is hating what God hates. If you're going to continue going after God, you're going to have to walk in agreement with God. Now, I told you that Amos 3 verse 3 is used a lot of times. Probably if you've ever heard that verse, you've heard it in a marriage uh, seminar or book or a thing about relationships to walk in agreement. You know, how can they do that? Now, listen, though. God is expressly using that verse to talk about the relationship of his people to himself. How can we say that we walk with God except we are in agreement with him? That we walk after him? That we begin to love what he loves and hate what he hates? It says that if we do that, then we know beyond a shadow of a doubt God's done a work in us. If we've turned and received by faith that, that soul-cleansing blood applied to our soul, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt once that work has begun that the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed us from all our sin. It's not just some, it's all. Amen? God doesn't leave, God doesn't leave any. When we, when we pray and we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, it says that he cleanses us from all our sin. That what, what you did when you were eight, what you did when you were 18, what you did when you were 28, all those sins, even that one, yes, even that one. Even the one that you've prayed about 500 times, even that one. The one that you've repetitively brought up to God, even that one. It says he cleanses us, does it say from most sin? Or all. My Bible says all. And I, you know, I stick with the authorized for a reason. But it says all. All. Because this is from all sin. The, 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 the thing that we need to see in this verse is that when we turn to God, God fully and completely turns it to us and he pours and applies the blood of Jesus to us and he receives us, he names us his own, he adopts us into the family of God, he gives us the Holy Spirit, he gives us new life, he gives us an inheritance in glory and he gives us a new name. But it's for those that walk in agreement with him. 
You can't say that you're his if you don't walk in agreement. One of the saddest commentaries we see in the church world today is everybody under the sun, church on every corner, ministries on every corner, and, and, and yet we have people that condone walking in darkness when the Bible expressly says, you read it right there, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Am I saying you got to be perfect? No, I'm telling you God's perfect. You got to turn to God, and God will perfect you, that God will will work a work of holiness in you i'm not telling you that you've got to have it all together but i got to tell you you got to trust god that he'll do that work in you and that the bible says without holiness no man will see the lord if there's nothing there's got to be something in us that causes us to want to be holy unto god the bible says Peter teaches us this too. He says, be ye holy for God is holy. Well, I don't really like that verse, Pastor. Yeah, the prophets in Amos' day, they were right there with you. Well, you know, the Bible says, be ye holy for I'm holy, but that, that verse really is not my verse. I don't really put that one on my refrigerator. I like the verse that says, if God be for me, who can be against me? You would have fit in well with the prophets of Amos. But we've got to get to that place where, where the, we desire the whole counsel of God. All of it. All of it. And let me share this with you. Let me share this with you. Why? Why would God bring correction to a people? Do you know why God judged Israel and not Judah too? Well, God was going to redeem people, and he had to have somebody there. He used Judah to bring Jesus. But God could have just as well terminated everybody. He had every right to. But why? Why does God bring correction to some? You know what? It's not to be mean. You know why God brings correction is because he wants reconciliation. God wouldn't correct us if he didn't desire us to have fellowship restored. I want you to see this. In, in Amos 3, verse 3, what I see is God telling a people, our fellowship is broken. Our fellowship is broken. I believe that when Amos went out and he began to prophesy, and, and Amos is awesome. I love Amos because he wasn't from the prophet cloth. He didn't come from a prophet family. He didn't go to a prophet school. God just raised him up because nobody else would preach what God wanted to preach. So God picked out a farmer. He said, come here and preach. And Amos obeyed God. I believe if Israel would have heeded the prophetic word that came through Amos, God would have not destroyed Israel. God would have not sown them to the wind. And I believe the same thing in our day and in our generation, that if the church would begin to heed this same word, this cry, I hear this cry in Amos 3, verse 3, that God is saying, you've broken fellowship. You're no longer walking in agreement with me. You can't say that we're walking together because you're no longer in agreement with me. You're now in agreement with the society around you. You look more like the world than me. You act 
like the world, not me. You talk like the world, not me. You live like the world, not me. It is not the Holy Spirit that is motivating you. It is the worldly spirit motivating you. So I, I believe in Amos 3, you, you, you see the cry of God telling his people, our fellowship's been broken. And I believe if they would have repented and said, you're right, we're wrong, cleanse us, Lord. Forgive us, God. Make us new, like David said. Create in me a new heart, Lord. Forgive me of my transgression. I believe God would have done it, do you? And I believe today that if the church will begin to rise up, get back in the prayer closet, get out of the worldly closet, get out of the, the world system, and get back into a place where we are holy and separated unto God, and that the fire of God will be poured out upon the church again. There's going to be a move of God. There's going to be a latter rain movement. He's going to pour out his spirit again on the church world like never before. We're going to see our sons and our daughters saved and filled with the spirit of God. God's going to do a work in this generation with us or without us, but I'd rather it be with us. I, I believe that God's going to do an amazing work just when all hope seems lost. God's going to show up and show out. And he's looking for a people to use to work through. And if you're willing to walk in agreement with God, I believe God's going to use you in a supernatural awesome and mighty way to be a holy witness against an ungodly society that's getting more ungodly as the clock ticks it's getting more ungodly the bottom's falling out cancel culture setting in but God is standing up he's rising up he's stirring up a generation and he's going to move and he's going to pour out the spirit like never before God's going to do it God's going to get the glory God's going to get the increase and God's going to rule and reign on this earth that has rejected him it will then accept him every knee will bow every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord God Most High. Every knee, every tongue. Hallelujah. Glory to the Lamb. I believe with all my heart that the reason God would bring a word like this to Israel is because he wanted fellowship restored. He wanted fellowship restored. God's desire is that our fellowship be restored. That's God's desire. You see, the, the order is so important. You see that the apostle John breaks this apart. He said, God's light in him is no darkness, right? You can't say that you know God, love God, you're like God, you got this, that, and the other, and live in disagreement with his standard. You can't. However, verse 9 pops up. This is God's desire to bring in restoration. This is God's desire to bring in redemption. This is God's desire to restore. In closing, verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us 
from all unrighteousness. John's writing that in the first person. He's talking plurality. He's talking to the church. He's saying, look, guys, we the church, we can't say that we know God and live like the world. And if we get into that place where God, you know, shines the holy flashlight and shows us you're beginning to talk like, act like, look like the world, we need to go back to God and ask for forgiveness. And we know that if we confess and we repent, we know that the blood of Jesus will cleanse us from our sins. We know 